Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Rob McLeod, joined by the empathetic Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? How are you? I feel the same way you do, Rob. So today, behavior management, aka discipline, in the mainstream school classroom. We're going to do a little bit of comparison about how this differs from the kind of discipline or behavior management you might see in a traditional school and hopefully set the table for what it looks like in the progressive school. So if you're brand new to us, you might be thinking, what is a traditional school or probably more so what is a mainstream school? So we've got this theory. We've got this theory that there's three types of schools and everything kind of stems from that. And it's become quite a complex theory with lots of parts and we're still fleshing it out. So for new listeners or even for our own practice, it's good to be able to um, elucidate this idea in a small form, a nutshell, as you might say. Rob's going to attempt to spell out all of the parts of this theory and how they connect in a mere minute or three. Every school is in a tug of war. It's getting pulled in these three opposing directions. Each of these three types of schools or three types of visions for school has its own definitions about what makes for a good education. And here's why this tug of war is difficult to notice, because all three approaches to education use the same vocabulary when talking about education and school. However, each of these three has its own definition for what those terms mean. So let's characterize these three approaches with the following names. So we're saying traditional, mainstream, and progressive. If you're into Frederick Ledoux's Reinventing Organizations or Sproul Dynamics, these line up fairly closely with the amber or blue approach, the orange approach, and the green approach from those models. If you don't know them, don't worry about them. We're going to characterize them by kind of focusing on the relationships you'll see. Now, these kinds of relationships you can definitely see in the classroom in terms of student-teacher dynamic, but they also permeate throughout the school anywhere that there's any kind of hierarchy or uh, structural roles. So the traditional lines up with a master and apprentice model. The mainstream type of school lines up with the coach athlete model. And the progressive lines up with the counselor counseled model of education. We'll get into what those mean in just one second. What's important though is each of those three, each has their own definitions for common vocabulary in education. For example, these three approaches would agree on the surface that education has three aims. All three would say, yes, we want to prepare people for the workforce. So occupational preparation being one of the aims of school. Two, the cultivation of citizenship. So to get people ready to live within our society and within our social norms. And three, self-development, that each person be can become self-realized in their own ways. However, each of the three approaches to education, traditional, mainstream, progressive, has completely different ideas about what each of these three aims of school, the occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development look like. So because each of them have their own ideas of what those words mean, each of those have different ideas about what the world looks like and how you get ready for the world. These three approaches not only define how an education is conducted, inside the classroom, but it also informs the school organization, the culture and the practices. So first let's zoom in and look in the classroom 
And then we'll expand out from there to see how each of these three types of relationships reinforce an approach to education. So first up, the traditional, the master and the apprentice. The teacher or the authority is an expert and knows the one best way for students to achieve academic success and meet those three aims of school. The mainstream Olympic coach and athlete, the teacher works to assess and create each student's individual optimal way while balancing effectiveness and efficiency to achieve maximum academic success in relationship to the curriculum and meet those three aims of school. And finally, the progressive counselor and counseled, the teacher and student negotiate the student's path to achieve their goals for academic success and meet those three aims. So each teacher within a school will have a preference towards one of those three approaches, while the school itself may have an overall consensus that reinforces another type of school. So there you begin to find this tug of war between the individual and the group vision of what a good education looks like. These three approaches not only impact the nature of what happens in the classroom, they ripple out to the rest of the school. So the master and apprentice approach requires a clear pyramid of authority, prioritizing security along with duty and tradition, putting trust in those in authority to uphold their duty for the integrity of the entire system. For the mainstream approach, the performance coach and athlete, they use like an organization structure that looks closer to a ladder. So it has more mobility and more shifting between the levels of authority. For And all of this serves as like a flexible meritocracy with some adaptability in it to be able to maximize the skills and uh, opportunities, not only for individuals, but also the organization. And it's prioritizing achievement along with measurable progress and transparency towards meeting specific goals, putting the results of those in authority as important for integrity of the system. And finally, progressive, the counselor counseled approach uses horizontal leadership. So more like a kind of flat circle, prioritizing inclusion, along with the individual's needs for meaning and empowerment, putting the personal and group significance um, of what is important first for the, integrity of the, for the integrity of the system. We often see a tug of war between how to organize the overall structure, either sh re shifting to reinforce a pyramid, a ladder, or a circle. Each of the three types of school can be done well, somewhat effectively, or poorly. So here on Reinventing Education, we believe it's better for a school to choose one of the three types of school that best suits its context. By context, we mean the students, the staff, the community, and then to choose that one and do it in a high-functioning manner. Otherwise, the tug of war between the three approaches comes at the expense of time, resources, passion, relationships, while not ensuring that any of the three approaches is even necessarily done well. The path to becoming a high-functioning school in any one of the three approaches to school requires the school to align its goals with the eight aspects of the school. So yes, we're dropping more terminology on you. What do we mean by the eight aspects of schools? Well, if you want to talk about what a school is, there are eight different ways that you could look at the school. Those eight different things are the exteriors and the interiors, as well as the individual and collective, which we're breaking down basically to mean 
systems, so how a school organizes itself, the environments, so where a school organizes itself, this could be the physical or digital environments, these could be the physical or digital environments, resources, so the actual things, what does the school use, the actions, what practices or activities do we see the school engaging in, the communities, so who are in the various overlapping circles of groups within the school and outside the school, the culture, so what do we allow in our groups, and then the beliefs of the individuals involved, so the ideas and values of each person involved, as well as the reactions, the emotional and physical responses of each individual to what is happening around them. Now, when we look through these eight aspects of school, we can see how each of the three types of school becomes high functioning. We wish to align those eight aspects of the school with the goals of one of the three approaches. So for example, to become a high functioning, traditional master and apprentice school, the goals need to center around coherence, expertise, clarify the duties and roles, and horizontal collaboration, meaning that each step of the school is in alignment with each other to build on to the next. To become a high-functioning mainstream or performance coach athlete school, the developmental goals are around transparency, database decisions, differentiation, as well as horizontal and vertical collaboration. And to become a high-functioning progressive school, the school of the counselor and counseled, the school will create its goals around decisions by consent, transdisciplinary models, individual meaning, and egalitarian structures. Each of these three approaches to school has strengths and gifts unique to them when done well. However, each of these three schools also bring weaknesses or drawbacks as well. Here on our podcast, we're exploring this idea of the three types of school, as well as another fourth type of school, which is a post-progressive approach to education that prioritizes the integration of those previous three approaches. You might be asking, why do we need to integrate them? Well, as I just said, each has its gifts and each has its drawbacks. The babies and the bathwaters of each approach. And an integration approach would actually seek to find a flexible and adaptive balance between these three previous approaches in order to inquire and provide what is deemed a best fit for the students, the community, and the system in any given context to best meet those three educational aims of occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development as defined by those involved. The integration value attempts to maximize the gifts when appropriate of each of the approaches of education while discerning how to minimize the unnecessary drawbacks that are required when wholly investing in only doing one approach to school. So we're basically saying either take one and do it well or continue to develop your school to become this post-progressive approach which seeks to integrate the best of the previous three approaches. Each approach to education solves problems or drawbacks that the previous one created, but also has more potential gifts than the previous, and yet the danger is has more moving parts and potentially more ways that it could go wrong. So this is a journey you wish to go on with a map. So one of the approaches to school we just discussed was the mainstream approach or that of the uh, coach and athlete. And we're going to dig into depth about what a mainstream approach to behavior management or discipline looks like within the school. So Brendan, I know there's a lot to talk about here. We've run the risk of 
running quite long with this. Let's do our best to be concise, show our own discipline. We'll have a behavior management plan between us to cut each other off if we get too rambly because you're only hurting yourself and maybe disturbing the others around you um, if we run a little too long and get a little too loud. So maybe Brennan, can you set the stage? Prior to this, we would have seen the traditional approach to behavior management or discipline. Do you want to just give us a few of the Coles notes from that before we get into what is different about this mainstream approach? So I guess uh, the traditional school, it's the one that gets a little bit of a bad rap when we think about it. It's the one that's based on shaming people on physical pain at times, but not always. Of course, there were many, many tactics and many strategies used in the traditional school. Those are just the ones that are, you know, kind of codified into our popular culture. In the traditional school, if you stepped out of line, this was very, very serious because of the nature of the security being at the core value. So if you were seen as threatening that security, the, whether you were threatening the authority of the, the master or putting other people um, kind of at risk with your, with your silliness and your distractions, it was fine to shame. It was fine to even physically hurt to remind you, to put you back in your place. And what we said at the time is it wasn't even always necessary for the student to know what that connection was or know specifically what it was they did wrong, only that they had done something wrong. And often they would know, but it wasn't necessarily the case that it had to be spelled out to them. And all of those things changed as we moved into the more mainstream approach. So mainstream behavior management which is the newer term for what would have been called discipline in the past. Um, the kind of discipline that is meted out to you. Obviously, there's a lot of talk within traditional schools about self-discipline, but we're talking here more about how the adults in the room keep the kids in line. And one difference when you get to the mainstream approach is that preemptive and preventative attempt to kind of set out what the rules are clearly and to give reminders and warnings if you're approaching the danger zone and to model what is and isn't appropriate. So as with much of the stuff in the mainstream like system, it becomes about being clear, about being measurable, about being transparent. And there is a little bit of what you said that you're only hurting yourself and disturbing others. But this idea in the mainstream where it becomes competitive and it becomes as much about your own growth and your own goals as the group, you are. Any disruption, any unsafe behavior is actually going to, in the long-term, damage your opportunities as you go through school. And so there's a lot of truth in them. You're only hurting yourself rather than what you might hear in the traditional. This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you uh, is one of the old cliches you would hear. And um, many people would argue whether that was the case. But um, these notion of shared agreements or writing the rules together. Now, you know, we've done this a lot, Rob, but we, we know when we sit down to write those rules, more or less what they are going to be. And through a process, it's more gaining consensus and gaining that we all agree that these rules are the ones that will 
keep us on track, keep us happy, keep us safe. And there's, there's you know, there's often specific reasons why. Now, it's a very different consensus from the progressive school because it is very much about things that we've already agreed upon within our system. But it is about making those rules clear, making them transparent. It is a little bit of negotiation that you see in mainstream schools, but it is not it is not a personalized. It is not a deep negotiation. It is about us just making it clear to everyone in that room. These are the rules. These are why we have them. And these are the consequences of not adhering to them. Yeah, and they're like, you were specifically speaking about sitting down with your class of students to create these shared agreements and agreements is like the new word for rules. So we don't call them rules in the mainstream school. Now it's an agreement of that this is the way we'll conduct ourselves. Not to get too etymological about this, but it is interesting that we've moved from this idea of discipline in the traditional school to behavior management in the mainstream school. And you're like, okay, so how are we managing behavior? And it's kind of like, well, what we're really doing is trying to keep your attention, your focus and your actions on the tasks at hand, which are getting you through the curriculum and we're trying to maximize your performance and your achievement here so any of this management we're doing is to try to like keep you on track to keep you on path to your future success so this is like in your best interest so if you are the reason that is holding back your achievement your success your opportunity then it is like more morally important for us to step in to manage your behavior in order to like get you back on track. This is seen as an inherent good. Now I'm sure you will find no teacher in the history of the planet who would say it that way in a job interview or something like that. But I think that's kind of the, the like implicit change here that moving them from this idea of discipline of like needing to get rid of the bad behavior towards this idea of like incentivizing good behavior and things like shared agreements or all these other strategies that are trying to be preventative and not as reactionary as you might see in the traditional approach. There's this idea of like, we're going to, we're going to solve this problem ahead of time. We're going to have steps to ensure that this, that these things don't happen. And I think that preventative side um, is really like the new thing that this mainstream approach really brings online. I think one thing to look at is the notion of shame also that we've moved away from the idea that if I bring shame to you as a student, that's a terrible thing. And that's something that our, our group, our school is going to focus on to keep you doing the things that you should do. That's no longer seen as either a um, ethical or a useful strategy in mainstream schools. So the idea of shame begins to send you on a spiral where you will no longer want to compete and participate and make progress. And this is a, the whole other side of kind of mainstream schooling that comes out of that, you know, scientific method and the kind of enlightenment values of equality and um, everybody getting rights and opportunity. And it's kind of saying, well, actually, having a shame-based culture doesn't really put us in this kind of frame of equity. And it also doesn't put the person who is making the decisions in charge of those decisions. And of course, in school, 
who gets to make the decisions, even in a mainstream, is a, is a very contentious issue. But at least in a mainstream mindset, there's an idea of moving towards this idea of choice. And so what we will have in a lot of mainstream conversations about behavior management is you chose to do this. And, and teachers will, will push this as a strategy to actually get that cognition or that metacognition going in students. You have chosen to make these actions. Now, the criticism that you'll get from progressive schools is that they only use it in this term. That's one of the few times when the language of choice is really pushed in mainstream schools. It's not really there when you're talking about standardized tests or, or, or pathways through school. There's some. But anyway, in terms of behavior management, why, what, what was your thinking that made you choose to do this? And sometimes it's an actual conversation, especially with older kids. And other times it's kind of more just kind of like the set of reminders to be like, okay, maybe we need to think about our actions a little bit more and their, their consequences. But it's definitely um, moving towards a slightly more reflective practice and the idea of, you know, what could you have done differently? What choice did you make here that you could have chosen to go in a different path? And that's actually a very different mindset from the more traditional mindset that, that, that would not really consider that these were uh, conscious choices. Not uh, often they're not right. Yeah. One of the things they talk about in progress, uh, one of the things they talk about in traditional schools is the impulsiveness of young children, but it's dealt with slightly differently. Definitely in a mainstream school, impulsiveness is not really an excuse for your actions. We get into special needs, of course, but in, in the majority of conversations, your impulsiveness is not, is not really a rationale for what you do. Yeah, and I think as well, we're moving from the master and apprentice traditional approach of the master being the barometer for what's acceptable and what's not, and when you've crossed the line and when not. And I think in the least healthy cases, you know, this is basically just when you like tick off <laughs> the teacher, you upset them. And, you know, you might hear something from a traditional teacher where, you know, it's very much, why are you making me angry? Why are you bothering? Why are you annoying me? And I think when you move into the mainstream, we get into the, more of this idea of like making our language and our feelings objective and moving away from why are you bothering me towards one of the strategies you started to talk about, like, you know, trying to be objective. Like, so, you know, myself as the teacher, I see whatever it is, an incident or behavior. And I say, I saw you chose to do X. So like trying to report what I saw, not you were choosing, you know, you were being bad. Rather, I saw you hit the person or whatever. We, and then, you know, like, like the objective letter of the law, refer back to our shared agreements. We are respectful or we keep our hands to ourselves or whatever it is. It's like, I saw you chose to do X. We don't do that. We do Y or whatever it is. So... Why did you choose to do X, you know? And then I think at the best, like, you know, what did you need? What were you trying to get? And it's like one step towards modeling this kind of like nonviolent communication approach and then setting up again, being preemptive, like turning this into a learning experience saying like, okay, so next time, what will you do differently? So next time they do this, we know you want this and we, 
you know, these are our agreements. What are you going to do differently next time? And hopefully being responsive, being preemptive and preventing a future occurrence like this. And this gets into the idea of separating the act and the actor, separating the person from the decision they made. In a more traditional school, it is often, I, I'm careful, I want to be careful not to oversimplify or strum on this, but to see that a person is how they are and how they act. He is lazy. He's thoughtless, however you want to put it. And you would see that, that um, language, as you've just said, you know, that was a thoughtless act. And uh, this idea of every, every day, every hour is a chance to reset that. When we get into restorative practices for, for, um, for people who've broken relationships and things, and that does start to move a little more into progressive, but still this idea of very logical frameworks and choices and decisions, and the person making the decision isn't necessarily that person always. They may have just made a choice and they also are in control of whether they continue to choose that or whether they change. Language does become so important and practices in mainstream schools are more often than not based off of research. And we get into things like the seven to one ratio of like being aware of the impact your language as a teacher is having in the classroom. So the seven to one ratio is basically like seven compliments to one critique. So reinforce good behavior seven times before having to, you know, reinforce rules or corrective behavior or point out misbehavior. So, you know, those seven things might be like, oh, I like the way, you know, you waited your turn. Oh, I like how, you know, you kept your hands to yourself when someone did this. Oh, thanks for having, you know, your homework or thanks for tidying up whatever. So that you've built up that relationship, that kind of trust between the coach and the athlete, that when you do need to step in with some criticism or, you know, condemn a behavior or redirect something or point out objectively what it is that you saw that it's more likely to be taken because there there is the awareness that this person also sees me in a positive light as well and so yeah this i I think just this idea of like we begin to move towards systems and transparent systems of how we talk transparent behavior systems where it's laid out clearly like you know the law like hey if you choose to do x these are the consequences or at least it's labeled out in some kind of measurable form like hey you get three warnings for this and then this is the consequence like it's very structured very clear very linear and when done best completely the same for everybody in the class with total equity and equality so that no matter who it is who acts in whatever way we all know that we agreed to the same agreements could face the same consequences these kinds of things And again, just this idea of incentivizing good behavior. So reinforcing the positive things, but that your good behavior will actually open more opportunities for you. So we incentivize good behavior with additional opportunities, additional choice. Maybe there's a, you know, Friday afternoon free play type thing. If behaved well all week, that type of a thing that not only is your good behavior an inherent good because it's helping you in the long run and now. Not only that, but hey, as a bonus, you do this and you get this extra thing. And so that's kind of a, a behaviorist technique, which is often associated with traditional kind of schools, but actually behaviorist 
stuff really came into the fore when the mainstream was emerging in the sense that it was almost taking scientific methods and applying them to how people um, acted. And so these ideas of sticker charts and rainbows on the wall where you would move a a child up and down depending on how good they'd been, which are still prevalent in many classrooms and have their place. These are the beginnings of, um, you know, the mainstream approach to behavior management because it acknowledges that some students, especially the younger ones, maybe don't have the notion of long-term choice of long aren't able or aren't as able to make positive long-term decisions when faced with short-term rewards. I mean, who is really? That's one of the challenges for all of us. But these behavior charts, these sticker charts, they kind of acknowledge that if we give you a little bit of a incentive here, you might make a few small good choices and then eventually you'll learn to make longer term, bigger choices. Now, I don't know from what I've read and seen whether that transfer happens. I'm skeptical and I've used a lot of point systems, especially in my teaching in classes. You know, you'll, you'll give table points and so on for cleaning up and for finishing soon. And of course, it does keep, you know, people in line because it incentivizes good behavior like in the moment if you do this right now you will get four points for your team and your team by the end of the week will get more or less or the whole class if you want to do it like that you were describing earlier and it does seem like a bit of a magic uh, thing when you first start teaching but I'd be more and more skeptical that that was transferring over because the thing is once the novelty of that wears off you have to change it for something new and if you're doing that over and over you, they're not I'm not seeing that transfer as much so but it's there it's it's there and it has its point but um and your entire system that. can break with one poorly timed point award so I had a system like that my first year teaching and had a supply teacher longtime teacher knew them well all that sort of stuff and I forget the exact numbers, but let's just say if everyone was ready, you know, this is like Canada. So we've got bus times. So like you have to be ready when the bus is ready to go type of a thing. So that was a, always a bit of a stressful end of the day thing. And I was like, okay, like, you know, if, if we're all ready at the time the bell goes, when we're supposed to get on the buses, like, you know, whatever it was 10 points or something like that. Well, I had a supply teacher in, I came back the next day and like, you know, Mrs. So-and-so gave us a hundred points for being ready. And it was like, no, because now everything had to be like rescaled. And then their actual motivation, like you're saying, was obviously not about, we don't have to make the bus drivers wait. And of course we talked about these things, why it's inherently good to be ready for the bus. But then all of a sudden, if being ready for the bus is now a hundred points, not 10, well now, you know, make sure the, the chalkboards are clean. Is that really five? That probably needs to be 50 now. And then the whole thing just started to fall apart and it just escalation. I more or less abandoned them after that inflation happened. Well, there's a weird uh, correlation to standardized testing as well, which is why in England they started with letters and then they went to numbers because they went to A, then A star, then A double star, and there was no one else to go. So now they reset it to, to be numbers. And it's all inherent in this, in the, uh, it is one of the flaws of the of mainstream system, but it also has a lot of benefits. And it's, if it's used wisely, it can, it can um, have some 
some benefits and it, and it introduces a little bit of fun and competition um, that can uh, then transfer over into good habits, possibly. One other thing I'd go into before we go into the babies and the bathwater is the notion of policies. So school-wide behavior policies as well. So this is no longer in the hands of a single teacher. Of course, it is open to interpretation, but you have child protection policies that um, that spell out, you know, how uh, individuals can interact with their, their students in terms of, um, you know, things like physical um, punishment or whatever, which until not that long ago in many countries was still pretty prevalent. You know, now child protection policies are very clear of where the lines are in those. And behavior management policies and, and how schools as a whole deal with um, certain kinds of behavior and the consequences uh, starting off. You know, we, we've had, I've in two schools I've worked at, we've had like a flow chart essentially that says, you know, if someone, uh, you know, they don't spell things like to the nth degree. They basically say at this level as a teacher, if you feel that the student has gone way above and beyond your, your uh, class rules, then you would contact the special needs coordinator or the vice principal or parents. And then the next step would be that would be a meeting with parents or you would have a, a review process. You would have a behavior management plan all the way up to, you know, eventually moving into suspension from school and eventually exclusion, which is very rare, but schools and especially bigger schools and, and, and schools that are in districts where they have a, a huge range of needs more and more have to be very, very clear on how these um, policies kind of set out um, their response to certain behaviors. And this can then also feed back into the school, maybe on like a lesser degree to what you're getting at there. But a mainstream school, first of all, will have like IEPs, like individual education plans. Um, and Often these are for more academic things like, oh, or, you know, some sort of like special needs. So like, you know, this student gets materials that are magnified, like, you know, their works on paper that's twice as large, or they get extra time, or, you know, they get this resource when they're doing this kind of work. But as well, there can be IEPs with behavior goals as well that aren't strictly academic. And they will have very specific goals for the sake of consistency between teachers as well. So again, like you say, the discernment of what's acceptable behavior isn't just in the hands of one teacher. The, this does need to be like a school-wide thing. And I guess the last point, I don't think we touched on this, but again, connecting back to this idea of things being uh, preventative in the mainstream school when it comes to behavior management, the idea of just straight up, you can move students around the room in different ways and like in different seating charts. Now, obviously, not every traditional teacher uses the kind of standard rows of desks with space between the students. Some do, some don't. But what you're more likely going to see in the mainstream school are small table groups of seating in the class, but also flexible or strategic seating um, to basically move people around to the most effective groups. And what do we mean by most effective groups? Well, it could be you know, the most effective differentiated groups or the most effective small group groups, or, you know, it might be, Hey, this one kid actually it is just way more effective and efficient for them to sit on their own. That's what works for them. Whereas these other six, they're doing better when they sit together, this group, you know, you can strategically 
position how desks face so that those two students who no matter what, who are just oil and water, can't even have each other in their line of sight, these sorts of things. So I just think you'll see a lot more variety of seating arrangements in the mainstream school as opposed to the traditional school with a focus on the impact of how this influences the attention and behavior of the students involved. So lots of things there, lots of new things, lots of strategies. Uh, Brennan, if we were to start to look at what some of the babies and bathwaters are to the mainstream approach to behavior management and discipline, what are some of the babies? What are the good things? And yeah, like you said, there's so much. It's like it's such a large part of every teacher and every parent's kind of day-to-day -day life of how the uh, younger ones around us behave and how we support that. Now, some of the positives in the mainstream system is that the punishment should fit the crime. And actually, they move away from the word punishment, right, in towards consequences. And, and the word crime. <laughs> Crime's still used. <laughs> Not in school so much. So, yeah, the mainstream system is, is very much modeled on something like a legal system and the notion of due process, the idea that the student should understand, you know, what the issue was, what the problem is, what their, why their choice was not a good one and the consequences of that choice for those around them, but also what the consequences will be for themselves. It's advised that these consequences are set out in advance so that students know if, if you do this, you, this is what's going to happen. And often, you know, reminders will be given first. It's a three strike thing is very common. And then the consequences are, again, they're in line with what, what has been damaged. So if you have hurt somebody, the aim is that you would try and make it, uh, repair that emotional bridge with them. If you've damaged some property, you would be expected to pay for the, the damage. And so that's why the, having a logical um, connection between the transgression, if you like, and the consequence is felt within a mainstream school is really um, necessary to, uh, to fulfill this sense of justice in the student at the very least. It's not an unfair and arbitrary decision. It was clear. It was set out in advance. You took this action and this is the consequence. And the enforcement of this is something that shouldn't disturb the rest of the class. So in the traditional school, Brennan, earlier you mentioned this idea of shame. So often if someone is misbehaving, you know, the, the lesson might come to a screeching halt for 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, while sort of someone gets like a talking down and a sort of public humiliation, if you will. And then, you know, this is definitely done in front of everyone, but the lesson is certainly coming to a stop to address the disturbance. However, in a mainstream school, you know, lost time is a lost opportunity. And the idea is that, you know, the reinforcing of this shouldn't disturb the rest of the class as much as possible. So if there is a disruption, there might be subtle nonverbal cues that are given first, a pointing to something, a look, all these sorts of things, and then a private discussion as much as possible after the fact that is not disturbing the attention or the workflow or the cooperation of of the others in the room and that's not to hide it 
that is just as you say to avoid disruption so after the fact it would not be uncommon for a discussion to happen about the kind of issues that had happened especially if it was a, a fight or something being damaged um, but the aim there again is to uh, fix the problem and move forward and prevent it from happening again rather than to enact any shame on the the person who had carried out the the act and this is a this is a, a hot uh, this contentious issue between more traditional teachers and mainstream teachers and you will have this discussion and parents in the home as well of like how do we deal with this because the short sharp shock and the and the shame and the physical pain that traditional schools might use or traditional homes uh, has an effect. Mainstream would argue that the effect is not positive long-term. One thing that, that um, the mainstream school also does is that it's acknowledging these issues or these patterns of behavior, these patterns of uh, negative behavior and the consequence of them as a, uh, the, we're looking to find a way to support them. We're looking to find a way to help the student overcome the underlying issues that are causing these. And that whether that's from uh, their background, their relationship, whether it is a special needs issue. And, and so the special needs coordinator and teachers, if you have them in the school and, and, and other members of the community will communicate to try to put together a plan. Like we said, the IEP, the individual education plan or ILP, there's many terms for it, but essentially those levels from the regular differentiation in the classroom, which can, like you said, seating plans and so on, moving into a, uh, some form of support and then eventually moving into the highest level of support that might involve um, medical professionals or, or whatever to, to support the student. If you look back at traditional schooling, that doesn't necessarily, there wasn't a lot of support staff and support systems put in place for necessarily always identifying the causes of the, of the student's behavior and uh, supporting them to move um, in a more uh, positive direction. Within the mainstream school, there's always this idea of like, we will find a way and a persistence of strategies. And, you know, it might involve different people beyond yourself, just as a classroom. Like you said, this might involve special needs, might involve talking with the parents, other teachers, these sorts of things. But again, there is this kind of like scientific method approach of like trial and error. We will find the thing that will work. You know, we won't give up. Um, we'll be, we're willing to bring in whatever it takes in order to do this as efficiently, but as effectively as possible, essentially. And, you know, there is this idea of, okay, we tried this, that didn't work. Let's try this. Oh, that had more of an impact. Hey, could we even try this? It might have more of an impact and not necessarily the idea of like, no, there's one way we do this. And if it's not working, then the kid just faces the consequences of, of that. Yeah. And then underlying all of that, I guess, is the, the move towards, and again, these are enlightenment values that humans are essentially good in and of themselves and if left that if supported they want to live in harmonious societies that benefit everybody and we don't always make wise decisions we don't always see the things ahead of us as clarity but underneath it all the mainstream school believes that you can and you will make a good choice for yourself and 
for the people around you. And of course, we've talked a lot about the, the, the downside of the competitive nature, but you're pushing yourself on every day in every way I'm getting better and better. This kind of notion of growth and personal growth and development within the system of school, within that framework. We talk a lot about how that is opened up a lot more in progressive schools, but there is a framework of school, but we believe within that framework, you and you can become better and you can help the people around you to also become better. Brennan, all of this sounds great. These are all good things about the mainstream approach to school. Well, we're finished, Rob, because there's nothing wrong with how the mainstream school approaches it. So that see you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for coming. So as we started the episode with, we said that each of these three types of school have their gifts, their babies, the good things about them, and then as well the bathwater, some of the drawbacks. So Let's get into some of the drawbacks, some of the bathwater here. And as usual, we'll kind of jump between the other two types of schools. So a bit of a traditional critique and a bit of a progressive critique. You gave some foreshadowing for this earlier, Brennan. The progressive approach to school might see those kinds of shared agreements that are being made in a mainstream classroom where the teacher's sitting down with the students to say, okay, you know, what, what are the agreements we want in this space for how we want to spend our days together? And as you were saying, it doesn't go far enough into actual restorative practices. So still at best, it's kind of the letter of the law. And it's sort of like, you just have to act this way. Whereas a progressive teacher might actually take more of the time to get really down to like the core needs of a student or why certain behaviors are manifesting and not just kind of keep it down to sort of the next approach up of impulse control. You mentioned that traditional talks about this idea of impulse control. If we're being a little bit derogatory or cynical, you can kind of say the mainstream approach is still largely impulse control, but just with a little bit more complexity around it and never really taking the time to get to like the real person's deeper needs as to why, you know, this behavior is authentically arising with arising from them within these contexts. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, progressive educators or parents might look at this very mechanistic almost approach that the mainstream school takes of reward and consequence and see, that's not how life works. We're not robots where we do a wrong. And so B happens, everything has a context. And the only way that you can really dig deep into why we're making these decisions and how we can become better holistically is to take the time to dig in. How did this happen? And acknowledge that complexity and moving forward. Um, and yes, everything within the mainstream school has to be answered within that mainstream system. So if you were sitting there with Sue children and they're, they're, they're solving a problem together and their solution is just, nothing to do with what the mainstream school wants okay we're going to go off and we're going to play in the park for six hours together <laughs> it's like a progressive educator would say okay we'll look at that review we'll see if that's what you need but let's try that i'll talk it through of course this is a good idea what's the reason whereas a mainstream educator would like dude i ain't got six hours to let you go play in the park why don't you just shake hands and get on with it <laughs> agree not to hurt each other anymore again that's a little bit straw manning because you know it takes behavior management in mainstream schools takes a huge amount of your time up and you do want to have effect, 
effective and efficient practices to to have people make agreements together and so i think the um, aggressive school would argue that you're cutting to the chase a little bit quick and you might um, benefit from spending more time in digging deeper the mainstream teacher would um, in all honesty probably see a lot of benefits in in that but not within the system really have the capacity to be able to spend that amount of time. And we've said this a lot, you know, we feel for mainstream teachers who are pulled in those directions, you know, your students need more time. You know, this is something that you um, could really help with if you had more resources and more time. And they're up at 10 midnight, making plans, phoning parents after school or making home visits even. And, you know, feel for for people in that position because yeah the progressive school would would put curriculum put everything else to one side while we dealt with these issues and unfortunately the mainstream school will really not allow that to happen and obviously not allow it to happen as the main priority as you're saying it it happens but at the end of, of the day if you have to prioritize things at the end of the day it's that performance within the mainstream expectations it's at the end of the day like you know i prefaced this entire conversation by saying when we're talking about behavior management what we're really talking about is that your attention is on the curriculum objectives and that your actions are in alignment with that and that you're doing your best and at at the very least not impeding anyone else from their own personal progress and whatever behavior management comes into play in here, it's like, at the end of the day, if there's a hundred things connected to the behavior management, at the end of the day, it's going to be the disruption to student learning in the classroom that's going to kind of trump all these other things. I'm going to have to shuffle the other 99 in order to most efficiently deal with this over perhaps most effectively dealing with this. And I think, I think we're speaking from experience here. You know, we've, we've been in, in mainstream schools where we have had to go above and beyond to get, and, and every teacher in a mainstream school probably have this story, to go above and beyond to, to add extra support to this student or these group of students, um, and often fighting against the system that is saying, no, no, you need to prioritize these uh, academic because that's the thing that school is here for. And in many cases, that's what we're going to test these kids on. And it's going to determine their future as well. So it's not even like you can say, oh, well, you know, all these other, no, the purpose of this mainstream education is to get you to those qualifications at the end or, or the main focus, there's other purposes too. So it's like, you can't ever push that aside for very long. Not only will it hurt, um, not, not only, it, it will hurt the student long-term if you do not address this academic issue alongside the behavior management and the, and the more, um, the underlying causes of, of their actions. It's an impossible task. Much Appreciate. love and kudos given to anyone working on this. I prefaced this entire episode by introducing you as the empathetic Brendan O'Leary. And here you are showing your true colors. I, I missed the M part. 
just thought you said that. <laughs> you were using some of that good old-fashioned shame to get me to work harder. You are pathetic. <laughs> so traditional, <laughs> traditional critique of the mainstream approach to behavior management or discipline is typically the traditional educator would have zero tolerance. So as soon as the disruption or the misbehavior or whatever it is occurs, it needs to be dealt with quickly, promptly, swiftly, stopped dead in its tracks because there's this idea, there's that slippery slope of if you let something slide, now that's the new marker. Because there, of course, will be rules laid out in the classroom, but the enforcement of those rules is still very much in the hands of that master and the master apprentice. And the apprentices can see if there is the sliding scale. Oh, the rule says that, but is that in fact true the way that this is going to play out? And it's definitely much more difficult to move the line back to where it was once it has been shifted. So this idea of like, we need to address these things immediately and perhaps would critique the mainstream teacher to say, hey, you were trying to do a mini lesson there. And for five minutes, that dude wasn't responding to any of your signals or cues. You tried to keep teaching, but everyone's attention was on that kid. <laughs> like he, he still totally disrupted everything you did. A quick word, a quick something, like jolt them out of their trance type of a thing, like put them in their place. You can't be soft on crime. You know, and this, again, I think this is straw manning. But the extreme of it is that idea of like spare the rod, spoil the man, spoil the child, this sort of a thing. So this idea that by you not being so prompt and direct, you're actually doing a disservice short term and potentially long term for you as an entire group. If people see that, oh, no, the the arena of off duty task is actually larger than maybe the rules imply. Yeah. And that fear of bad habits being ingrained long-term. Yes, absolutely. And so the slippery slope idea is very prevalent in traditional schools. And, and there's the thing is that there's truth in it, that all of these have a partial truth, as we often say. So the fact is that if you don't come in with, and address that issue immediately, it may get worse. The mainstream school would say, okay, well, we're not going to use shame to do that. We're not going to use physical punishment to do that. We are going to use strategies. We are going to test out to see whether they work. So there is definitely a negotiation and a conversation there, but the, what you might hear from a traditional teacher is what they call the broken window um, strategy, right? I don't know if you've heard about that one in, in New York. You know, one of the things that they said about why the, the city was cleaned up was because they, they fixed all of the broken windows in the down to, in the worst areas of town. And they basically like made sure that any small crimes were taken care of. And what this did is it, it uh, filtered over into the, uh, the larger city and it actually made the, the, a lot uh, serious crime went down. Um, it was later worked out that uh, that was more to do with the fact that they put far, far more police on the streets than the fixing of the windows. Now, you know, if you know more about this than I do, please tell me, maybe I'm strawmining that story. But the thing is that there's truth in both of these ideas. And um, the, the positive of the mainstream is that they would more likely uh, weigh up the success of these strategies over time. 
Um, but yet they would still be criticized for being soft on crime in some areas. There we have it. Behavior management, discipline in the mainstream school 101. So up next, we're going to be talking about the feedback, the approach to feedback and marking work, as well as assessment, marking and grading in the mainstream school. So shift from behavior back into the academics in the mainstream classroom. Yes. Well, I, I will look forward to that. That's an area we've talked a lot about. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, get in touch with us on the Twitter and the Reinventing Education Podcast, gmail.com, etc., etc. Take it easy, everyone. Empathetic. Bye. Thanks, Brennan.